So we're going to delve into some incredibly deep ideas regarding perm. But I'll start off with the story. It's a story of a man who's walking down the road, and he notices someone down the block, and he says, Oh my gosh, I know that person. What do I know him from? He realizes that it's his childhood friend. He hasn't seen him in like 40, 50 years. Goes over, says, How you doing? And they start catching up. They start sharing good old times, good stories. And I says, you know, I actually live just a block away. Why don't you come to my apartment and we'll, you know, catch up. We'll share good old stories. It'll be amazing. So they go to his apartment and they're having a good time. They're sharing stories, eating some food, and they lose track of time. And it's late at night. It's dark and dark. They just completely lose track of time. They have no idea what time it is. And they're just having such a blast. And the guest turns to his host and he says, you know, it's getting pretty late. What time is it? Do you have a watch? The guy said, actually, no, I don't have a watch. He said, what do you mean? You don't have a watch. How do you tell time? You know, do you have a clock? It's not have a clock. So he says, how do you tell time? He says, I tell time with a trumpet. So he says, what are you talking about? He says, I'll show you. Goes to the back, pulls out a trumpet, opens the window, and he lets out a deafening blast. And a couple seconds later, he hears someone else open up the window and say, It's two o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? He turns to his friend. Two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's a great story. I want to share another story, though. It's a story of a woman who is, you know, not, not really a woman. She's more like a you know, teenage girl. She's like 16, 17 years old. And she's with her younger sister. They're on the train. And she turns to her sister, and she says, where are your shoes? And her sister turns to her and says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I forgot my shoes at home. And she loses her temper, and she screams at her sister, you stupid girl, what's wrong with you? I told you you had one job, your only job was to get dressed and put your shoes on and you couldn't do that you're gonna be cold you're gonna get sick what's wrong with you a couple minutes later they get off the train she's pointed to one direction her sister is pointed to a different direction and the woman who's telling the story older woman 80 85 years old says i was that 16 year old girl and that was the last time I ever saw my younger sister because we got off the train and we realized that we were at some place called Auschwitz and the line that my sister was told to go into went straight to the gas chambers, I ended up surviving. The last thing I ever told my sister was you stupid girl. A word I... I don't even like using that word. I told that to my sister. The last thing I ever told her, I couldn't forgive myself. And for years, I regretted to the deepest part of my core that I did that. And I made a commitment that whenever I end a conversation with someone, I would have to be happy with if that was the last thing I ever told that person. That would be a good enough way to end our conversation. It's impossible, it's an ideal it's impossible to live up to, but it's an ideal that we can walk into, try to step towards. Now, the question is, what do these stories have to do with Purim? 
Purim is an amazing, amazing Chag, an amazing holiday. It's an amazing time. It's it's so powerful. And there's so many aspects of Purim. The Halachas of Purim, we can delve into the Megillah, Shalchmanos, and Taslavyanim. The deeper themes of Purim are also very powerful. I mean, the main themes of Purim are pretty posh, pretty simple. We have Simcha, we should be happy. We have Hafachu, everything seems to flip and turn around in the Megillah and the story of Purim. We have the idea of seeing Hashem within the natural, that there's no open miracle when it comes to Purim. But there are some lesser known themes. And what I want to do today is I want to delve into one of the most incredible topics of Torah. It's a topic which is so pasha, it's so simple, and yet it's life-changing. It's something which you may have never heard before. It's something that can literally change your life. And one of the last known themes of Purim, this theme that we're going to delve into, is that Purim is the Chag, it's the holiday of laughter. And Chazal actually say that not only is Purim the Chag of laughter, but others are the month of laughter. And the way Chazal discuss this idea is that every month is connected to a certain theme. So you have a month that's related to seeing, related to hearing, related to walking, and the 12 months are also connected to the 12 Shvatim. Adar is connected to the theme of laughter. Now the question is, what, what does that mean? What is, what, what is laughter? Like, okay, that's great because I guess when you're full of joy, you laugh, but what's the deeper idea here? What's the concept of laughter? How is it connected to other? How is it connected to Purim? Let's try to understand. So let's start with trying to understand the spiritual concept of laughter. And the, the, In order to really do this well, you have to have a little bit of background because every concept in life is full of spiritual depth. And the way to understand it is that a spiritual life is seeing the depth behind every physical surface. So it's being able to look past the surface and see a deeper reality. And the principle behind that is the famous Midrash, which the Ramban, the Ramcham, Haral, all quote all the time, is Stakel Baraisa Baralma. That this world isn't just a place. It's not just a place that Hashem created where we do mitzvahs and connect Hashem. The world itself is an expression of a deeper reality. Meaning, the Estakal B'raisa Baralma Hashem used the Torah, not just Torah Shabbat, but the deeper concept of Torah, Baralma, and that's how he created the world. The Torah is the blueprint of reality. So you have the genetic code of a zygote, it becomes expressed into a full human being. You have a seed of a tree, it becomes a fully expressed tree. You have you know, the film in a projector, you project it onto the wall and the screen, everything you see on the screen stems from the projector. It's root and expression. The physical is an expression of the spiritual. The finite is an expression of the infinite. The corporeal, the limited, the surface level is an expression of something deeper. It changes the way you see everything because Torah is not just a mechanism of living a spiritual life. It's a mechanism of deepening everything in the physical world. So the entire way of building a spiritual lens is to learn how to deepen, not transcend, but deepen, almost like a channel. And it's building a hierarchy where you, you walk step by step up a spiritual ladder. And it's understanding that there are stages. It's really delving deeper. It's not just going from not spiritual to spiritual, from not physical to spiritual. You're going through the physical into something deeper. And you can say, this sounds really hard. <laughs> I'm not deep enough to do that. How do you do that? Well, 
you do it without even understanding that you do it. Because when you speak to someone, can you see their thoughts? Can you see their mind? Can you see their inner self? No. So how do you communicate with people? How do you know them? You use their surface. You use their facial expressions, the words they say, the actions they do, their, their face, their body. You're accessing them, their inner self, through a physical medium. And building a relationship is going deeper and deeper. So the first relationship you want to build is building a deeper relationship with yourself. Going deeper and deeper into yourself. You want to build a real relationship with someone else by going deeper and deeper past the surface level, past how you doing, I'm doing okay, okay, great, I'm also doing okay. Like that's introduction. Then you say, you know, you start to get to know the person, get to know who they are, why they do what they do, what they struggle, what they want, their personality, who they are trying to become, who they were, where they're going, where they've been. And you start to get past the surface level expression. And that's really interesting. When you think of someone, you don't think of their face. You think of them as an idea because you really are getting past the surface of what they are on a physical plane to the core of them as an actual self and consciousness as neshama and then you get to actually build a relationship with them so the entire essence of living a spiritual life is using a medium of finite physical limited expression to gain access to the root we access the deeper realm of torah through torah shabbat we read the words of torah shabbat and you delve deeper the mishnayis you delve deeper gemara you delve deeper with the rishonim you delve deeper into the realm of Machshav and deeper Jewish thought. It's all about using a surface as an introductory medium and going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And that's the same thing when it comes to Hashem. You don't see Hashem. Hashem doesn't talk to you, but He does through the physical world, through the Torah, through your experiences, through things that are happening in the world. The world is literally, your entire life is a conversation with Hashem. And every aspect of this world is full of depth because used the spiritual root of reality to create the physical world everything in the physical world is full of spiritual depth so for example think of dreams dreams are such an amazing thing to think about it's like talk to someone and you try to convince them that you should live a Torah life, live a spiritual life, live a deeper life, devote your life to a higher purpose, devote your life to Hashem, devote your life to the truth. Well, say, so what are you talking about? Like, that's, that's, that's all great, that's all nice, but how do I know that's worth doing? How do I know that's the truth? How do I know that's real? So you tell them. Well, that's a really good question, but let me ask you a question. How do you know that this is real? When you're dreaming, don't you think that that dream is so real? That's why you're so excited. When you're having a nightmare, don't you think it's so real? That's why you're so terrified. And then you wake up and you realize that what you thought was so real is not so real at all. Now, we don't believe that the physical world is a fake, that it's not real, that it's an, that it's an illusion. And on a deeper sense, the world is an allusion, not an illusion. It guides you something deeper. So we don't negate and reject the world and say it's meaningless. You should just live for Olam Haba. The Rambam actually says that you should dafka not do that. You should specifically not do that. But in a very deep sense, 
once you understand that everything that you think is absolute is not absolute, that what you think is so real is not so real, you start to expand your notion of reality and question and deepen. And obviously this can be interesting because you can lead to nihilism where nothing's real, nothing's valid, which is really postmodernism where you live in a world where nothing has validity because you can question anything and everything and anything can be anything. But the Torah-rooted perspective is to basically loosen your connection of that which is not of absolute reality of this world and deepen it to gain access to something more. Not by transcending and losing access to this world. Like we're not Buddhists. We don't just meditate on evil and transcend the world of eating and drinking and marriage and connection, all aspects of this world. We embrace it. We uplift it. We use it to connect to something higher. That's why all mitzvahs, tzavta, Maharal explains that the root of mitzvah comes from the Lashem tzavta because all mitzvahs are about connecting to something higher through the physical world. And everything in this world is a means of connection to something higher. Everything. Because the entire world is an expression of something higher. So what that means is that, and just to finish off the point, that you can literally count the number of mental, intellectual, philosophical mitzvahs on your hand, right? Believe in Hashem, don't serve idolatry, don't be jealous, which even those who think, you know, don't be jealous is an intellectual mitzvah. Almost everyone thinks you have to concretize it by actually taking it and stealing it. So we're talking about mitzvah as a physical concept, right? You shake a little, you eat matzah, you wear tefillin. Why are mitzvahs so physical? Because living a spiritual life, according to Torah, is living a physically spiritual life. You're living as an angel in a physical body, and your job is to live a transcendently imminent life, to live a powerfully, vibrantly, thoughtful, meaningful, deep life in this world. As an neshama, you're powerless. As a body, you're nothing. As an neshama with a body, you can do everything. And that's what we are, that's who we are. And everything in this world, every physical idea, every physical object, every emotional aspect of the human experience, the entire physical body, all of physics, all of science, all of mathematics, everything in this world is full of depth and meaning. And I talk about this all the time, but when you learn quantum mechanics and learn my result, it's incredible. You learn mathematics and learn Maharal, it's amazing. Right, but it's understanding the connection, and by the way, it's root and expression. So the source of all physical wisdom stems from Torah because the source of the physical world is Torah. So now that everything has meaning, everything has meaning, which means something like laughter has a lot of meaning. So now the question is, what is the meaning of laughter? What is the idea of laughter? And how does this connect? How can this deepen our understanding of Adar and Purim and really transform our Purim? So let's start with laughter. What is laughter? So the concept, and this is not Torah, this is really just the mechanics of what laughter is. The mechanics of laughter is something that's brought upon an experience that's unexpected, that's seemingly impossible, that's a sudden transition from something else. If you'd literally ask a comedian, what's your job? What do you do? Well, what's your profession? They'll tell you that my job is misdirection. Right? I lead my audience in one direction. At the very last second, I introduce something so counterintuitive, so opposite where they thought it was going, that so catches them off guard that they erupt in laughter. Right? It's like, don't you hate it when a sentence doesn't end the way you elephant? It's like, 
what in the world was that last word doing there? It doesn't belong there. That's the, what causes the, like, what, what? It's like the shock factor. And if you think about it, the story I started off with, the trumpet story, the reason it's funny is because the last thing you expected was for him to tell time with a trumpet by waking up his neighbors at two in the morning. But like you don't process that. You just process like that's the last thing I expected. It's hilarious. And yet the spiritual concept, the Torah concept of laughter is actually very connected to the Torah concept of crying, of tears. Because laughter is caused by the sudden and expected joy of something elated it's like it's this feeling of oh my gosh everything's so great and the tears you know, tears of laughter tears of crying they're very connected because crying and tears is also it comes from an unexpected transition to something sad now it also comes from an unexpected transition to something happy it's like when you get the news that unfortunately someone's going to pass away because they have cancer, you cry with sadness. When you get the news that they mis they actually mistook your files with someone else's files, and they're actually, they don't have cancer, they're gonna be fine, you also cry, but it's tears of laughter. Meaning, it's the transition that's so unexpected, and the real concept, by the way, is a breaking of a clear path. When a clear path gets destroyed, there's that feeling of everything's broken. But when the path was very good and it's destroyed, everything's broken and sad. Those are tears of pain. When the path forward was one that was horrible and everything is now broken because now there's a better path, there's also tears. But it's tears of joy and tears of laughter. So that's why the concept, bocheh, right? The, the tears of the crying, the tears, it has the same root of, of the Rambam's Mor Nevuchim. Nevuchim is a guide for the perplexed, the confused, because tears, crying, and confusion, it's all very connected. It's all very connected. And the second story I mentioned, which was just so overwhelming, it was just that, that, that realization that the last thing she said to her sister was, you stupid girls, are just terrible words to say. And it's not a curse for it, but it's just, it's not a nice thing to say. And the last thing she said to her sister, and for you to realize she's telling you this story and it turned out to be Auschwitz, it's just everything's broken, everything's so, it's this unexpected sad transition. And in a very deep sense, the tears of joy and the tears of sadness are very connected to her. It's why Pesach and Tishabov always fall out on the same day of the week. Right? I'm pretty sure it's the same day of the week, it's the same day, but why do they fall on the same day? Because the greatest Yeshua of Pesach is also going to be connected to the day of the greatest Horban, the greatest destruction. Right? And you need to go through the hardship of the Horban in order to reach the ultimate Yeshua, in order to reach the, reach the ultimate redemption of Pesach. And it's really, it's true in our lives. I mean, you know this just as well as I do, that every incredible part of your life, the really incredible parts of your life, you had to go through a certain level of trial and tribulation, of pain, of breakdown, of whatever you went through to get there. And you only really enjoy everything that you're able to attain because of how far you've come, because of what you overcame, because of the struggles. And you really only become great because of your struggles, not despite them. And now we can transition the main event, so to speak, Purim and Laughter.
because now we understand the concept of laughter. And, and you know, actually, I, I take it back. I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. And the reason I want to go deeper is because th there's actually another aspect that's going to really open up the power of Purim. In order to do that, I want to really just lay down a couple more examples of the spiritual applications of laughter. And the first one is the man in the Torah, or should I say the Av in the Torah, who is named after laughter, and that's Yitzchak. Now why is Yitzchak named laughter? Because his very essence is laughter. His very essence is an impossible transition, something that's so counterintuitive, something that doesn't really make sense. And if you think about it, Yitzchak comes from Avraham and Sarah. It was impossible for Yitzchak to be born. Avraham was too old. Sarah, not only was Avraham too old, the Gemara Yavamos, says that Sarah didn't even have a base flat. She was barren. Right? Not only was she barren, she didn't have the very physical possibility of housing a child. She didn't even have a base flat. And the Mazalos, so Avraham tells Hashem, and the Gemara in Shabbos, Kuf Nun Vav, I believe, that Avraham saw that he wasn't destined to have children. It was impossible. Now, you know, we've talked about this in the past where Avraham wasn't destined to have children, but Avraham was, and Avraham had to go above the Mazalos. That's why Hashem, talking about Chutzah, as Rashi explains, he had to. He had to literally transform himself and become a new, higher version of himself that was capable of transcending his nature, which is a very powerful topic. But according to Tava, according to the Mazals, according to nature, Yitzchak shouldn't be born. Yitzchak's very birth was an impossibility. And the very response when the Malach tells Avram and Sarah that they're going to have a child, what happens? So Avram laughs and Sarah laughs. Now, it's very interesting, by the way. Avram's laughter is not deemed to be bad laughter. Sarah's laughter is actually criticized, and there's a lot to talk about here, but on a passionate level, it's because Avraham's laughter comes from the spontaneous response of being overwhelmed with the miraculous nature, how incredible this is going to be, and Sarah's laughter is the same response at how incredible this is going to be, but not because I believe this is incredible, but because it's doubting the incredible news, as in there's a level of why was she so surprised? She shouldn't have been so surprised. Avram wasn't surprised. He was overjoyed. Sarah was surprised, as in, I don't think that's possible. Now, of course, we're talking about on Sarah's level. We're not talking about on <laughs> you or my level. But in terms of the distinction between Avram and Sarah, that's one way to approach the distinction why Avram wasn't criticized, but Sarah was. And we have so many mentions of, of laughter around Yitzchak. We have, so Avram laughs in Perak Yitzayin Bracious, uh, Sarah laughs in Perak Yitzchas Bracious, Sarah acknowledges laughter later on in Perak Chavalaf, and Yishmo is also laughing in Perak Chavalaf, uh, you know, laughing with, you know, in, re in relation to Yitzchak. Yitzchak laughs with Sarah in Perak Chavav. So, so much laughter with Yitzchak. And the question really then becomes what's going on here? Right. What's Yitzchak's? What's the deeper level here? So the first level we already explained is that Yitzchak's birth is an impossibility. So his very birth is laughter. I mean, laughter is when something that shouldn't, or is unexpected, or seemingly impossible comes into fruition, comes into being. It causes an emotional or spontaneous reaction of laughter. But spiritually, the concept of laughter is something that seems to be an impossibility, that transition, that impossible transition. So Yitzchak's birth was laughter, 
So Yitzchak's very essence is laughter, and his name, Hashem, is the same root as Neshama. Hashem represents essence. His very essence is an impossible transition of opposite, something that doesn't seem to have any possibility to exist. He comes into existence in Rashi. And Rashi, actually, on Perik Chafal of Pasuk Bav, says that when Yitzchak was born, it, he brought this concept of laughter and joy and transition into the world. That barren woman became fertile, sick people were healed, feels were answered, everything that wasn't was, everything that was wasn't, everything transitioned. Yitzchak represents transition. The transition of something that shouldn't be, something that seems to be impossible. And to take it a step further, Yitzchak's very essence is this impossibility, it's this paradox, so to speak. The Rizal, quoting Chazal, says that we think that when Avraham performed the Akedah, that it wasn't successful. But the Gemara says that when they came back to Eretz Yisrael, they found the ashes of Yitzchak on that spot. Why? Because, and this is the Chazal referred to it, that Yitzchak was the first example of Tchiyas HaMesim. That's why it's not that Avraham didn't perform the Akedah, it's that in a certain level, Yitzchak's neshama, even though there wasn't, you know, to push up shot, the Akedah didn't actually happen in terms of following through with it. But on a deeper level, Yitzchak's neshama left his body and then came back down. And that's why the first three Brachos and Shmon parallel the three others. And the first one was Magen Avraham, the second was Mechayim Esim, right? Mechayim Esim. Mechayim Esim, Mechayim Mechayim Esim. What's Mechayim Esim have to do with Yitzchak? And the answer should be pushed by now is that Yitzchak was the first example of Tchiyas Esim. Yitzchak literally was resuscitated. And that's why the Arizal mentions that Yitzchak also spells Kate's Chai. Someone who lives Kates at end point in Olam Haba, Chai, while still in this world. Because Yitzchak literally left his body, went to Olam Haba, then came back down to this world, but didn't leave Olam Haba. So he lives on a transcendent level while still in this world. His very essence is a contrast of opposites, living in opposites, living in paradox, living in Olam Haba while in Olam Haza, living in the natural while still in this world. It's an incredible transition of absolute opposites. So as we see, Yitzchak's whole essence is transition, is this, this concept of laughter. And that's why Yitzchak is so associated with Mashiach. Because Mashiach is literally the ultimate flipping of reality where everything transitions, everything changes. Obviously, there's a machalakas lingbar to what extent things are going to change in terms of Teva, in terms of the natural world. But we'll, we'll talk in a couple minutes about you know, some deeper elements of, of what exactly the transition will be. But I want to take just a couple minutes, and we're going to get to a lot of the incredible Purim Torah very soon, don't worry. But I'm framing it so it's as deep as possible. The deepest concept of laughter is something that looks like death, but it's really birth, which is also very connected to Yitzchak. And the Rambam in Murnavuchim discusses this in great depth, but he mentions how in a very deep way that there's different examples of how something seems like one thing, but it's really another. Which is the concept of laughter, it's the concept of transition, the concept of paradoxical opposites converging. And one of the examples that the Ramam gives is birth. So if you look at what's actually happening when a woman gives birth, it looks like two people are dying, 
right? But what's really happening? It's the source of life. So what looks like two people are dying is really the source of giving birth to life. And if you didn't know that, you'd literally like, you'd call the police, right? If you saw some, you didn't know what was happening when you saw someone giving birth, you'd think there was just blood and chaos and death and everything's just going wrong. And in a deeper, you know, if you want to take it to a steep, deeper level, a fetus has all the opposite features of what it takes to survive in the world. So everything that a fetus has would kill a normal human being, and all of the human features would kill a fetus, right? So for example, a fetus literally is living underwater. There's no lung function. The lungs are completely closed. It doesn't breathe. The blood flows in a completely different way. There are holes in its heart, and the blood flows in a reverse direction, right? No blood goes to the lungs. Different kind of blood. Like literally, as the child is born, all of their features spell death, right? And literally a child usually goes blue and purple and literally a child is dying as they're born, right? He can't breathe. And even if he could, he doesn't have any lungs, right? He's bleeding furiously through his umbilical cord. He only has like a coffee mug's worth of blood. Literally, within those first couple minutes, everything that the fetus has is a recipe for death. And then everything literally reverses. The first four minutes, everything switches, Right, the umbilical cord hardens. Literally, it's like stops the bleeding. Hardens like a like a ring of iron, and the, the holes in the fetus's heart close up. The lungs open up simultaneously. The blood flow reverses and hits the lungs. It, it's just incredible. And the Gemara actually mentions that what opens closes, what closes opens, which is an amazing thing. And the Rambam uses this to explain that this shows the concept of Haba because. It seems that when you die, you simply like leave this world, that you don't have what it takes to exist in another dimension. But really, just like the fetus doesn't have what it takes to live in this world and the transition, everything kind of flips, like this world, it's the same way. Like You can't really understand how that transition takes place. So it's the idea of a transition of opposites where everything that seems to be death is life, everything that seems to be life is death. And this is the famous, famous Marshall. Actually, it's mentioned in a famous, famous Midrash have two twins that are sitting in a womb and one longs to be born they can't wait to enter the real world they're so excited they say oh haven't you heard about this world that's going to be amazing and the other cynical and says oh don't you know if we're going to die as soon as we leave right? there's nothing out there and even if there is like our bodies aren't built for that world it's not going to be good so basically they're talking about living in one dimension, being optimistic or pessimistic about the next dimension. And the optimistic fetus is born and his twin weeps because he thinks he's dead. Right? Really, in reality, the, his twin has entered the world and is fully alive and vibrant. But when you believe that transition is death, you mourn it. And that's the same thing where the Bali Mashallah is saying there's no such thing as death. Right? Death is just your neshama leaving your body. You're transitioning into another state, another level, another dimension. But if you think that this world is all that there is, then the moment that your self leaves your body, you don't exist anymore. Which is a self-defined death. And that's actually the deepest idea is that really there is no death, which is, by the way, it's why... When someone dies, we put them in a kever. We put them in a grave. But a kever also means a womb. And Myra explains that death is just... 
death itself is non-existent. There's no such thing as death. What death means is the separation of body and soul. But even that separation of body and soul is not real. It's just temporary. And it's almost like you plant a seed in the ground, it falls apart, but then grows into a tree. You plant the body in the ground when it dies, and then tzchias hamesim, the neshama comes right back into that body, and you're reborn into this world again. So the idea is that even death itself is really laughter, is really appearing to be one thing and something else. And that's really building up to the ultimate laughter, which is really obviously connected to the stage of Tchias Nesim, which is the stage of Mashiach. And that's why Yitzchak is so connected to Mashiach, because Yitzchak really is this concept of transition, of contrasting opposites, of unexpected, seemingly impossible reality being born into reality. And we mention Eishas Chayel, but Tishchak Liyamacharon, at the end of days, at that time, we're going to be full of laughter. And she's going to laugh at the end of days, in the times of Mashiach. What's, what's going on here? So the idea is that Mashiach itself is the ultimate transition. Mashiach is where, essentially things go from a state where we are in now to where the world finally sees HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We finally have a world that reveals the truth. And it's a very, very deep idea that the woman, what's the, why is the Isha's Chayel by Tzitzchak Yemachem? Why, why not us? Why not men? Right? Why women? Because women are the vehicle of birth. It's a very, very deep idea we're not going to go into now, but in a certain sense, Chava is responsible for the sin of the Eitzadahs. In a certain sense, women have brought all Yeshua through every Chag. Women are kind of the backbone and the the, the foundation of the Yeshua. It's true of Pesach, true of Purim, it's true of Hanukkah. In a very deep sense, the transition to the next world is not going to only be accompanied by the joy of laughter, but it's the woman who understands the process of birth and the fact that birth looks like death because the woman is the vehicle of birth. She understands that transition and the pregnancy and the childbirth, it's a very, very deep concept. And that's why Mashiach is very much connected to the idea of birth. And birth looks like death, which is why Mashiach is going to come at a time where it looks like it's impossible to come. It's kind of like, you know, a seed. You plant a seed, it dies, it falls apart, and then it kind of grows into that tree. A butterfly, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, it looks like it's dying. It looks like it's falling apart. And then, because of that stage where it looked like it was dying, and because of the pain it goes through, it becomes a butterfly. It's a famous story of someone who sees that happening, sees a, a caterpillar cocoon, sees it suffering, so it opens up the, the cocoon trying to save the caterpillar. And for the rest of the caterpillar's life, it was this mangled caterpillar figure because it needs to go through that pain and that struggle to transition in that metamorphosis where it becomes a butterfly. Without that struggle and pain, it doesn't become a butterfly. Without what we go through throughout Jewish history, we can't bring Mashiach. It's through the pain that we go through that transition. And there's obviously many aspects of that transition. There's obviously a transition from Chol into Shabbos. And we sing this on Shabbos night because the transition from weekday to Shabbos Kodesh is analogous to transition to endpoint to Olam Haba, to Mashiach, to that. That's why a lot of Shabbos we talk about the creation of the world, we talk about Mantor, we also talk about Mashiach, because the whole idea 
of bringing the Mashiach is this transition to a higher state of reality. And we have to bring it. And that's why Yitzchak's name is Yitzchak. Right? He will laugh because he's connected to Mashiach. End point. It's in Tehillim, right? Our mouths are going to be full of laughter. And now, in the present, it looks like everything is not bringing Mashiach. It looks like you can say everything's terrible. I don't think everything's terrible, but some people will say everything was terrible. But the idea is that one day we'll see how everything was really building to this. Like in the future, in the Yavos Mashiach, we're going to laugh because we're going to see how this was such a transition that brought the ultimate redemption. So why, well, why is this so important for Purim? Why is it so important to frame the laughter of Purim? Because Chazal say that the Nida of others, laughter, ties into the essence of Purim. So what, what is the concept of laughter? So when it comes to Purim, and not just Purim, we'll start with Purim, but the essence of Purim is realizing that the greatest laughter is when evil people create their own downfall. When you look at the story of Purim, it's a story which seems to be a fascinating story. There's a party, Achashverosh wants his wife to come, she doesn't come, he kills her, he looks for a wife, gets Esther, Haman's brought into power, Haman wants to kill Mordechai, Mordechai doesn't bow down, and big son in Sheresh, and Esther, this, and then this happens, Achashverosh can't sleep, and he wants to do this, and Haman says this, and this happens to Mordechai, and this happens. It's like, that's great. But why is this a holiday? Where's the miracle? When it comes to Purim, there really is no miracle. That's why the, the shame Hashem is not mentioned in the Megillah, because Hashem doesn't openly reveal Himself in the Megillah. Where's the miracle of Purim? The miracle of Purim is, first of all, recognizing that we have a transition. Pesach is open miracles, where everything's open. The rules of nature are broken. The Ten Makos, we have Kriyas Yamsuf, we have leading up to Ma'an Torah, and everything's miraculous. The transition into a stage where we now have to use our free will to see Hashem. We have to earn that connection with Hashem. We have to build it where there is no longer open miracles. We have to see the miracles within the natural. We have to learn to see past the surface through the mask, gaining deeper, deeper access to the truth through the physical world. Not despite it, but through it. And Purim is where we see all the pieces. The miracle of Purim is how everything connects. Every single detail is insignificant on its own, but when aligned with everything else, it's like, oh my gosh, such hashkacha, such divine providence, I can't believe this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and oh my gosh, you happened to be there, and it happened to lead to this, and it happened to because of this, because you were there, and this happened, and that happened. Everything, everything becomes deeper once you connect it all together. And the greatest spiritual concept of that miracle of Purim is the spiritual laughter of realizing that everything Haman did, everything that he did created his own downfall. Everything he did to destroy Klai Yisrael, embodying Amalek, embodying the essence of attacking truth, attacking Hashem's revelation in this world, attacking Torah, attacking Klai Yisrael, attacking meaning and purpose, everything he did to destroy Klai Yisrael and Mordechai, everything created his own downfall. So think of it like this. Haman's idea, his big idea, was to kill Vashti. Right? Amazing. 
gets good counsel, becomes a, a nobody who's now a somebody. That's his rise to becoming, you know, second in command in this uh, incredible palace of Shushan. What happens because he kills Vashti? Sets up Esther becoming queen. Who's Esther? The source of his own downfall at the very end of the Purim story. So the second thing that Haman does is because of Haman's advice, he basically advises that the king should be allowed to decide personal matters without first getting advice or guidance from his council, right? That's Mimuchan, who Chazal explained was in fact Haman. He convinced Achashverosh to change the law to enable him to decide personal Nogea matters without permission or guidance from the elders or advisors. What ends up happening? Because of this, Achashverosh was able to kill Haman without first asking or getting permission from his advisors later on. So because of the taking advantage of, of Achashverosh's rash anger-oriented decision-making, which enabled Haman to kind of like allow Achashverosh to do that to kill Vashti, Achashverosh was now allowed to kill Haman without first getting counsel. Brilliant, right? Haman sees that Mordechai is not bowing down. He wants to kill Haman. What does he do? Sorry, he wants to kill Mordechai. So what does Haman do? Haman sets up the gallows to kill Mordechai. Who, does, who ends up getting hung on those gallows? Haman, right? He literally creates his own gallows, which is incredible. And he makes it 50 amos high. Why does he make it 50 amos high? So the Vilnagon explains, what's the idea of 50 amos, right? Meaning, first of all, 50 amos is so high, like no one can even see it. Right? Well, how, how would you even get it up there? It doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. It seems to be very strange. So it's very deep. The number of 50 is very deep. It's Lamala Meateva. We've talked about this when it comes to Sphere's Omer. We don't count the 50th day of the Omer because the 50th is not countable. It's like 6, 7, 8, where the, there's the, the natural realm goes with 7, 7 days a week, 7 notes on the, on the musical scale, 7 uh, colors in the spectrum of light. But the 8th is Lamala Meateva. So... Sphere's Omer is 7 times 7, and the 50th is the 8th. It's Lamalamantav. It's Abrish Mila's on the 8th day. Machanaka uh, Shemen, the miracle of light, which is the miraculous. Not getting in too deep into it, but 50 Amas is a very deep concept because it represents the, the 50th level of Lamala, like that transcendent realm. So it's Haman basically attacking that. It's a very deep idea. But the concept the villain going to explain is why Dafka is so high. So the reason he made it so high is because he knew that Ahasuerus had a temper. And he made rash decisions when he got angry, right? Hence, Vashti. So what he would do is Haman would get Ahasuerus angry or wait till Ahasuerus got angry at Mordechai. And then from the palace, the first thing Ahasuerus would see is the gallows, since it's 50 almost tall. And he'd say, hang him on that! It's a brilliant idea, right? Basically take advantage of Ahasuerus's anger and the fact that it would be the first thing he saw. What ends up happening? That same exact thing. But to Haman instead of Mordechai, right? So he sees the gallows and he says, hang Haman on that when he sees Haman and thinks that, you know, Haman's uh, trying to be with Esther, which is why he got so angry. So after he got angry for the fact that uh, Haman tried to kill Esther's people. So another example is that he set up the date to destroy the Jewish people. Right? Why did he just set up that state to destroy the Jewish people? Because he basically took the poor, took the lottery, to find out which date that he's going to kill the Jewish people. What ended up happening, that date was not the date that the Jewish people were destroyed. It was the date that Klai Yisrael destroyed their enemies. Brilliant. Destroyed Amalek. Also, why was Haman so excited about that date? Because that was the day that Moshe died. 
died on, on Adar, the seventh of Adar, right? But wouldn't he not know? Then Afahu, that was also the day that Moshe was born, which is brilliant, right? For the, he got excited for the death. It was really the exact opposite, also the birth. And at a deeper level, is brilliant. Haman tried to destroy Torah. And that's a very deep concept, which is that the reason why he was so excited that Moshe died in Adar is because, in a deep sense, Torah's Moshe. Moshe gave us a Torah. Torah, Torah is so connected to Moshe that the death of Moshe was the death of Torah in Haman's perspective. That's why he was going to take advantage of Moshe's death. What ended up happening, not only didn't, not only didn't Haman destroy the Torah, he caused the greatest acceptance of Torah in Jewish history. Kima Kiblu, in a certain sense the Gemara, says that this was even greater than the original acceptance of Torah on Arsini, and that it was only because of Kima Kiblu that the original acceptance was valid. Because the original acceptance, we had no free will. It was so obvious that Hashem existed. How can you say no to the to Kabbalah Satora? But when it comes to Purim, there was no open miracle. So we basically solidified our Kabbalah Satora, which is absolutely incredible. And this list can literally go on forever. We're just going to do like two or three more. But um, in terms of... I mean, the, uh, the, there are a couple which are just very obvious. Like, for example... Achashverosh goes over the goes over the Haman and says, "What should I give to the to reward the king's loyal servant?" And Haman gives this amazing thing, thinking that it's going to be for him. I'll wear the king's clothing, and I'll go through the streets, and he'll announce this is the person, whatever. And obviously, what ends up happening? That's exactly what ends up being the reward for Mordechai. And Haman has to be the one that takes Mordechai through the streets, and basically gives him all that covet. And there's. Two more, which I love. We can do a really a bunch, but I'll just do two more that I love. One is, we'll do the simple one first. The simple one is that it, it seems a little strange, and this is some of the, the first who say, it's a little strange that the very beginning of the Megillah, um, like Achashverosh is celebrating the Bishamikdash never being built again. We know that he had a calculation and that he basically determined that it was supposed to be built now, it's not being built again. And the Megillah ends with a very strange thing. It ends with like this big tax collection. And if you think about it, it's like, what? Like, we have this amazing, amazing story. The story of Purim. And it seems very anticlimactic that you just randomly end off the Megillah by mentioning this giant tax collection that Achashverosh had. But here's the brilliance. The Megillah begins with Achashverosh. This isn't Haman, this is Achashverosh. The Megillah begins with Achashverosh celebrating that the base of Mekdash is never going to be built again. The Megillah ends with Dayavesh becoming the chief fundraiser for the rebuilding of the second base of Mekdash. Right? Because in Sefer Ezra, the Yavish opens up his storehouses and the funds of the rebuild, basically those store, the storehouses, they fund the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. And that's using Achashverosh's funds. So the Megillah ends up by mentioning the task collection of Achashverosh because that would be literally the very funds that would rebuild the second Beis HaMikdash. So the Megillah starts off by mentioning how, oh, it seems like the Beis HaMikdash is never going to rebuild. And that's all celebration of the Suda. And it ends off with literally fundraising and the, the tax collection is going to be fundraising the very rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, which is absolutely, absolutely incredible. And just to mention one more, which is another, we can literally give a whole share on this because this is such a deep topic. But Mordechai refused to bow down 
And a lot of the Gedolim of his time, the Mepharshim and the Chazal actually talk about it. The Gedolim of his time said, Mordechai, what are you doing? You're literally causing the destruction of Klaisrael. Look at the poor that Haman did. Look at the Gezer that just was put on our heads. You are putting all of Klaisrael's lives at risk. Just bow down. And it seems that Mordechai was the cause of the entire struggle of Purim. Because Mordechai didn't bow down, he caused Haman to get so upset. And that's why Klaisrael was in danger. What ends up happening? So what did Chazal say? Chazal mentioned something absolutely brilliant. They say, what was the cause of the Gezer? The cause of the Gzera was the fact that Kleistral went to the Suda and that Kleistral bowed down to Haman. What was the, in what merit were Kleistral saved? Because Mordechai didn't bow down. Because Mordechai was able to essentially transport Kleistral by personally not bowing down and then helping all of Kleistral do tshuva. That's what Kleishal is saved. So it seems on the surface level that Mordechai is the cause of the downfall and the cause of the struggle and the cause of the Gzeira, and he's the problem, and then we solve the problem. In truth, Mordechai not only isn't he the, co- the cause of the problem, he's the very solution to the problem, which is another Vinahavchu. The entire concept of Vinahavchu, by the way, just to deepen it, the entire concept of Vinahavchu is laughter. The entire concept of everything flips on its head, that's the concept of laughter, a transition, a transition of opposites, an impossible transition, something that seems to be so unlikely is exactly the very source of the thing itself. And by the way, not only is this the essence of Purim, but this is actually something that serves as a foundational principle in many areas of Torah, in many many areas of almost all of the Chagin. So, for example, when it comes to Pesach, there's something very funny. There's something very, very funny about Pesach. The entire story of Pesach. I mean, if you think about it, I want you just to imagine, okay? So you have Paro. Paro is the king of the most incredibly powerful nation in the world. And he's trying to overcome a very big struggle he has because the Khartoumim told him there's going to be a savior of the Jewish people, you have to kill all the firstborns. So what's he doing? Paro is literally ordering the destruction of all the firstborn children, literally of all, all of Klai Yisrael, right? But not just Klai Yisrael. He's also killing every single, every single mystery firstborn child, right? Every single mystery firstborn boy. Why? Because the Khartoumim couldn't tell whether the Savior is going to be Jewish or Mitzri, and obviously the reason is because he was both, right? He was Jewish and he was raised by the Mitzri. So what's happening? Power is literally going across his entire nation, across his entire country, and he's killing everyone. Why? Because he knows there's going to be some heroic boy who might be the Savior of the Jewish people. All the while, what's happening? He's literally raising Moshe in his own home. This little Moshe is sitting on his lap as he's ordering every other boy in the entire world, essentially, to be killed. So he's ordering the murder of all possible redeemers while he has Moshe sitting on his knee. Right? Do you understand how incredible that is? Right? Yocheva put Moshe in the basket. Paro's daughter finds him. Paro himself raises him. It's literally incredible. He's killing every single person except for the person sitting right on his lap. And it's even deeper. The Ibn Ezra has a famous question. He says, why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to grow up in the house of Paro? And he answers a very deep psychological concept, which is that 
Kleister had a slave mentality. And we see this throughout the story in the Midbar where Kleister wants to go back to Mitzrayim. They have a really hard time. It's the whole idea of, of why the first the first mitzvah given to Klai Yisrael is the mitzvah of, of a Chodesh Hazan, of the mitzvah of the month, because Chodesh also represents Chidesh, and the moon waxes and the wanes, it renews itself, the sun doesn't. We count by the moon because we're constantly Nechadesh, we're constantly tapping into newness, HaKadosh Baruch Hu constantly creates the world, it's not a one-time thing. All this is basically the idea that Klai Yisrael needed to recreate themselves, to tap into a new identity, to recreate their identity because they had a slave mentality. Moshe couldn't have that. Moshe needed a leader's mentality. He needed to be a leader from his very root, which is why Moshe had to be born in Parah's palace. So it's not just that Parah raised him, and practically because of our Parahism is funny, because Parah is raising him, sitting on his lap while he's killing everyone else, but it's literally fundamentally only because Parah raised him that he was able to lead and save the Jewish people. And you know, in spiritual terms, this is very funny, that... He's out there killing everyone while the person he wants to kill is on his lap, and it's only because he's raising him in the palace that he builds this leader mentality, this leader identity, that Moshe is able to become the leader of Klai And And also, it's a very powerful example of Hanukkah, by the way, where the Greeks essentially tried to create a... Str- the, the Greeks tried to destroy our connection with Torah. That's the essential ideological battle of the Greeks. They said, you have no share in Torah. That's why they basically said... You know, they mentioned the Chet Egel and said, this is proof, you have no share in the Torah, the, you have no connection with Hashem. And they tried to basically bring Kleistral down to their level of intellectual greatness, but without any connection to Torah. So what was the result of the entire story of Hanukkah? Did they destroy our bond to Torah? Did they destroy our intellectual greatness with Torah? The exact opposite. Right? They caused the strongest connection to Torah Shabbat there ever was. In a deep sense... The essence, their friend talks about this, the essence of Hanukkah is the birth of Torah Shabbat Peh. So the Greeks tried to say that our human intellect is supreme to Torah. The result is that we didn't say no intellect is meaningless. We, we have Torah but not intellect. We don't like intellect. We said no, the exact opposite. We're going to express the greatest strength and growth of the Jewish intellect, which is Torah Shabbat Peh. Because if you have learned Gemara, the entire essence of Gemara is intellectual prowess, intellectual greatness. It's discernment, it's analysis, it's really breaking things down, it's understanding conceptual frameworks and organization and structured analysis of possible options and where the the intellectual structure can go, is going, would go, where things don't make sense, where things do line up. It's the ultimate use of intellect, but within the context and limitations of Avodas Hashem and Torah. Essentially, it's submitting your ego and saying I'm negating my ego and connecting myself to Hashem within that framework my intellect will go to the greatest heights possible greater than any intellectual heights the Greeks could possibly imagine from the human intellectual perspective and we also have post-rational elements when it comes to Torah as well which is you know, we've talked about this many times, that there are many things that the intellect is limited in, in the sense that there are many things that you need to go not irrational and lower than the intellect, but higher than the intellect. As in, how do you know that you exist? How do you know that you're alive? How do you know that your life has purpose and meaning? How do you know that you have free will? How do you know that there's something called love and, and marriage? How do you know there's something called beauty? How do you know there's something called wisdom? The, the, there's the realm of ideas that transcend intellect. You know, very basic levels, like how do you know that your parents are your parents? How do you know that you weren't born 
a couple minutes ago with all your memories in place. There's a limit to intellect, that's just the first level, and then there's something that surpasses intellect, which is higher level experience, as in, how do you, for example, it's like, if you've never tasted chocolate before and someone said chocolate's amazing, there's no way for you to know, like you'd know that chocolate exists intellectually, but until you experience it, it's nothing. There's a level of experiential knowledge that transcends intellectual knowledge in a way that you can know something very deeply intellectually until you experience it, it's not real. And the realness of the experience is not lower than intellect, it's not emotional, it's higher than intellect, it's post-rational. So the fact that you experience that you exist, that's the famous I think therefore I am of Descartes, it's that you experience that you exist, you can't prove that you exist because you can't get outside of your existence and use it as a control to really you know, rationally, intellectually prove that you exist. You know that you exist because you experience your own existence. You know that your life has meaning because you deeply experience it. You know that you have free will because you experience overcoming the real struggle to make a lower level immoral decision where you take full control of yourself, you assert your will, and you take that high road, that high path. And that's the way that, you know, even if scientifically we can question and debate whether or not, you know, according to neuroscience, you actually have free will, because we can't detect agency, we can't actually see if there's someone who's willing the decision, that's okay, because if even rationally I can't prove it, experientially I can't. So that's a whole topic which requires hours and hours of discussion we tried to do that within 60 seconds for those of you who are lost don't worry about it all for those of you who got some good review that's amazing and for those of you who had some real breakthrough there <laughs> that's amazing as well uh, we've talked about this many times in the past so you can really delve deeper into this many others here but what the concept in terms of Hanukkah, is that the Greeks attacked reason and intellect and we didn't say we're going to let go of reason and intellect as in, they basically said, all we need is reason and intellect. We didn't say we have something more. We said we have something more and. Right? We have the Torah and we're going to use intellect and reason to the highest extent possible within Torah growth, within Torah learning. That's the essence of Torah Shabbat. And I mean, there's another example, by the way, which is not, it's not evil per se, but when it comes to the brothers, the... It's just fascinating because Yosef has his dream where you know everything's going to bow down to that center, and they tried to destroy Yosef. They essentially disagreed with his dreams. They thought he was going to be the next Esav. That there was essentially Yitzchak and Shmuel. Yishmael got filtered. There was Yaakov and Esav. Esav got filtered. They thought Yosef was essentially the next Esav, and that he was evil. He wasn't good, and that's why they tried to destroy him. Now, by selling him down to Mitzrayim. What ended up happening was that they themselves were the ones who caused Yosef's dreams to come true because it's only because they sold him down to Mitzrayim that he became viceroy of Egypt, viceroy of Mitzrayim, and it's only because he became viceroy of Mitzrayim that they all went down to Mitzrayim to get food and ended up bowing down to Yosef, fulfilling the prophecy, fulfilling that dream. So literally, by trying to destroy and kill Yosef, they were actually the ones who fulfilled the very thing they disagreed with, the very dream that caused their hatred, and caused them to try to destroy Yosef was the very means and mechanism of fulfilling the prophecy itself, which is incredible if you think about it. Uh, and by the way, obviously, the greatest one of the greatest transitions in the entire Torah is when Yosef says, "Ani Yosef and their entire world shatters. It's literally the Chavetz Chaim says the greatest analogy for for Mashiach, where you literally say, "What in the world is going? On? Nothing makes sense. Why is this happening to me?" The brothers are literally saying, "Hashem, why are you doing this to us?" And then they realize, of course, this is why. 
everything was meaningful. Everything was specific. Everything was leading to this ultimate point in time where everything becomes clear. And this brings us full circle, which is, that's why Purim is so deeply connected to Mashiach. That's why in the times of Mashiach, the miracle of Pesach is going to be almost non-consequential because the miracles of Mashiach, the, the Zman Mashiach is going to kind of consume and be so much bigger. But Purim is is always going to be that transition within the natural, that transition where nothing miraculous happened, but it was a taste of Mashiach, a taste where you put all the pieces together, there's a sudden transition, everything becomes clear. And that's why Megillah, Megillah's Purim, uh, the Baal Hashem is saying that it's only when you are Megal Gel, when you roll the Megillah scroll, that you're Megaleh, that you reveal Hashem. And that's the deepest idea, is that you, you you only see the miraculous when you put the pieces together. It's why the Baal Hashem is saying that you have to write your own Megillah. You have to write your story. How did you become who you became? What decisions led you here? What events happened? Who did you meet? What decisions were, did you not pursue that ended up being like what were the worst things that ended up being the best things what growth experience did you have that formed who you are what struggles have you overcame what are you going through why are you who you are then you see the Yad Hashem then you see how everything is incredible then you see the miraculous nature of your life just like you see the miracles of Purim by putting all the pieces together you see that laughter it's the same thing in your life and that as the Ramachal explains is the deepest idea of what Mashiach is going to reveal. Because the deepest idea is that Hashem is guiding the world to its ultimate destination. Which means that everything that happens in this world is meaningful. Now, it's kind of like Waze. When you see, when Waze directs you, if someone is one of those people who says like, nah, I know better than Waze. And then you end up kind of like 30 minutes behind because you didn't know the traffic jam was there. It's like if you were a helicopter and you were you know, thousands of feet in the air, you see where the traffic is, you'd go in the right direction. You'd kind of like walkie-talkie or have a phone call with a guy down in the car and say, you'd go that direction. That's what Waze is. It's literally saying like, I know the situation. I can tell you where to go. Hashem not only has that viewpoint, but Hashem is guiding the world to its ultimate destination. In the moment... It doesn't always make sense. In the moment, it's painful. That's because growth is painful. It's because purpose is painful. It's because truth has a cost. And the Ramchal explains that in the times of Mashiach, there's going to be this laughter. What's what's the laughter in the times of Mashiach? Because we're going to realize everything that happened in our personal lives and everything that happened in all of Jewish history, everything that happened in all of history, everything, was meaningful. Everything was guiding and leading towards our ultimate destination. And history itself is revealing the Torah, is revealing the truth, is revealing Hashem's oneness, is revealing the purpose of life. At the end of days, we're going to be able to reveal Hashem's oneness in this world. The whole essence of Amalek, as Chazal say, is that because Amalek exists, Hashem's oneness is not yet revealed in this world. Right now, the world looks like a world of two-ness, physicality, 
of evil. You can't really see Hashem. You can't experience the truth in a deep way. You have to use your mind and seichel. You have to transcend to a certain sense. You have to go through the physical. The physical doesn't naturally reveal. You have to go deeper. You have to become deeper. You have to see the world with spiritual eyes. We talk all the time about the miraglim that they put their pet before their eye and they weren't able to see with true with true spiritual lens. Learning how to live a Torah life is learning how to see it with deeper Torah lens. We talked about Istakal Rice of our Alma. The whole physical world is is designed to reveal the spiritual. Our job is to reveal Hashem's oneness. Our job is to reveal the transcendent. Now here's something brilliant to think about. I'll leave you with this. You know, I have a lots of different types of formulations of what the purpose of life is to serve Hashem, to reveal Hashem, everything's for Hashem's kavod, to actualize your potential. Hashem created us to give us good, and the way that Hashem gives us good is if we become godly, because the more we actualize our tzam al-akim, the more we can connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to you know, the, true, the true essence of the true source of all, of all godliness, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. But there's something really interesting to think about, which really can be the last transition, the last laughter of this year, is that all these different formulations are actually part of one story. Because in a certain sense, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world to reveal himself. Now, as the Rambam and the Ramchal and the Maharal say, Hashem didn't have to create the world, it was, it was a spontaneous decision, meaning it wasn't a forced decision, Hashem chose to. But the reason HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kosh Baruch Hu created the world, and Ramchal delves into this in great length in Dastimonos, is to reveal truth, to reveal oneness, to reveal wisdom, to reveal Torah, to reveal good, to reveal everything that Hashem is. And the revelation is not the thing itself, just like when you say something, it's not the thought, the speech is a limited expression, but the world is designed to be a revelation, expression, so I have kol barel chavodel, kavod, you give kavod to someone when you think that person's great. Essentially, you give kavod to someone when you think that person is a reflection of truth. Why? Because truth is something that you value. Value is aligned with something that's true and real. You say, I, I respect that person. I admire that person. I give coverage to that person because that person's a Tamil Chacham. That person is great. That person actualized their potential. The concept of covered is not just that you give covered to something that reflects truth. But the concept of revealing one's own kavod is revealing your own, the truth of your own inner reality out into the world. So you give kavod to something that is a reflection of truth, and you express your own kavod as an expression of the truth that you are, the highest degree of truth that you are. So when someone gives you kavod, they're essentially giving you kavod for the kavod that you express. When you live a life of truth, connecting yourself to truth and you reveal truth, the truth that you reveal, the Torah, the wisdom, the ideas, the purpose, the amazing things that you do, all that is a revelation of your kavod. And when people give you kavod, they're connecting and realizing the things that you reveal are truth, and they're essentially connecting to Hashem through you. Hakol Barel the entire world, Stakel Baraisa Bar Alma, literally created this world as an expression of truth, an expression of Torah, expression of Arisa. That's why literally Arisa, Torah, is or. Arisa is or. Light, light reveals. The whole world is a revelation. So, what does that mean, Hakol Barel Everything in this world is a revelation of Hashem. So, by, by us giving cover to Hashem, by us recognizing, giving value to Hashem, 
we're connecting ourselves to Hashem. Meaning what? When you give cover to Hashem, you're essentially saying that Hashem is truth. That Hashem, I want to be like Hashem. It's not for Hashem's sake, it's for our sake. Why? Because here's where it becomes fascinating. Hashem created this world for two reasons. One is to reveal Himself in this world. The other is to give us the ultimate good. Because why? Because Hashem is good, but Hashem can also become good. The way you become good is you give good unto another. So Akash Baruch creates to give good unto us, because He not only is good and static, but He can also become good by giving good to us. Our entire purpose in life is to essentially actualize our potential, because as we've explained many times, the only way that we can receive Hashem's good is if we're like Hashem. The reason why you can't have a relationship with a rock is because you're nothing like a rock. And for us to really enjoy Hashem, which is to enjoy godliness, we have to become godly, which means we have to earn our perfection. We can only enjoy something that we've earned because fundamentally you can only enjoy something when you like the something that you want to enjoy. It happens to be that your tongue has taste receptors so you can enjoy food. If you didn't have taste receptors, you wouldn't enjoy food. It's literally your designed to be able to connect to certain things. The way for us to most connect to Hashem is to become the most like Hashem. So why am I saying this? Because this is a fascinating idea. On the one hand, our job is to reveal Hashem in this world, which means to literally bring transcendence down into this world. On the other hand, our job is to transcend. Our job is to become, to actualize our Salam and to become godly. It's to perfect ourselves. It's to ascend towards Hashem. Not to bring Hashem down to this world and reveal Hashem, but it's to ascend towards Hashem. What's brilliant is that the very means through which we reveal Hashem in this world is by becoming more like Hashem. As in the more we rise up, the more you can reveal Hashem. The more we reveal Hashem, the more we can rise up. So it's not about bringing Hashem down or us going up, it's literally both. It's the more that we ascend, the more we can bring Hashem down to this world, the more we bring Hashem down into this world, the more we can ascend. And the goal is both. And the, literally both enable each other. It's only by us growing and ascending that we can reveal Hashem. It's only by revealing Hashem that we can rise and ascend. And the two purposes of creation, to reveal Hashem in this world and for us to actualize our potential and receive good from Hashem, they require each other. Because the only way for us to reveal Hashem is to actualize our potential. The only way to actualize our potential is to reveal Hashem. It's incredibly deep. It'll take a lot of time to think about if you've never heard these ideas before. But that itself is an explosion, a revelation, a transition, a laughter, a, a realizing of opposites coming together in something which seems to be one thing to be really, really be another. And that's really the essence of Purim, is to reveal Hashem in this world, in a darkened world where we don't see Hashem openly, and realizing that the way to do that, the way to do that is to constantly delve deeper, to constantly work on perfecting ourselves, of actualizing our potential. So we should be Zohar, to really take full advantage of this Purim, to really understand the power of writing our story, not just to read our story. The Baal Hashem is saying not, not just to write your Megillah in terms of what's already happened in your life, but to pick up that pen and write your story. And it's like every great joke is you need the punchline in order for there to be laughter. It's the same thing with a story. A great story, it has to go somewhere. It has to have an ending. And right now you're writing your story. 
So right now you want to pick up the pen and say, where is the story going to go? How am I going to write the greatest story of all time? How am I going to turn every challenge I've ever had into part of my growth? How am I going to turn that into laughter? How am I going to turn something which seems to be bad into something good? That's really the idea of the Gemara Sutta. That says that at the end of time, Hashem is going to shecht the Yitzhahara. Why is he going to shecht the Yitzhahara? Why not kill the Yitzhahara? Because shechting means to make it kosher, to make it good. The deepest idea is that evil, like everything bad that's ever happened, is really bringing the ultimate good. And that means that every challenge you've ever had is really helping you, helping you actualize your potential. Everything that seems to be one thing is really in a deeper sense something more. And that's the essence of Purim. It's a time of inhafachu, it's a time of laughter, it's a time of kimu kiblu, where we choose to accept the Torah. It's not just something which is, it's something which becomes, it's something which we have to really make our own. We have to really earn it, even when it's not easy. And that's really the essence of this stage of history, where when Hashem no longer openly reveals Himself, there's no longer open miracles, there's no longer nevuah, we have to choose to see Hashem, we have to choose to live lives of meaning and purpose and truth. And that's not only the greatest responsibility, it's also the greatest opportunity. So it should be zochet to tap into the greatest depths of this Purim and really tap into the true laughter of this month.